in 1904. How many of y'all remember back then? Anybody? In 1904, the South American countries of Argentina, or Argentina excuse me, and Chile came to the brink of war against each other because of a border dispute. But a Christian woman who feared for her country and her brother, who was a general in the Argentinian army, began to lead a movement of people to stop the conflict from happening and erect a statue of Christ high in the Andes Mountains that separates the two countries. The legend is that Christ in the Andes, yeah, this statue is made from melted down cannons. Throw that picture up there, Matthias. This 21-foot tall statue was hauled up 3,800 feet by donkey and raised into this place. And it faces the border of both countries as a symbol of peace and unity, a covenant between the two countries to not go to war. 3,000 people climbed the Andes Mountains to watch these two opposing armies as they raise their guns to the air and fire off shots of dedication to the symbol of peace rather than war. Angela Oliveira Cesar de Costa was later nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize because of her efforts. So this is a covenant, an agreement, a promise of peace. And God had a covenant with Israel as well. If they would worship and honor God, then he would protect them. But Israel broke that peace treaty, and they felt the consequences of their sin. And we've been talking about the book of the prophet Malachi, and, and that's been our focus in this series of airing of grievances. And this is the last book in the Old Testament before 400 years of silence from God, known as the intertestamental period. And we've seen in this book a series of six disputes between God and his people, an airing of grievances. And God has legit reasons to be upset with the Israelites, and the Israelites are mischaracterizing a loving God because they're feeling the consequences of their sin without repentance. And last week we saw how God says, I have loved you. And the Israelites had the audacity to say, how have you loved us, God? And next God highlighted their offensive practice of bringing their worst to the temple, sick and diseased animals, their worship was offensive to God and their priorities were wrong. Israel had broken this covenant with God over and over and over again. So that brings us to dispute number three. See, Israel had broken the covenant between them and God. And this covenant breaking with God led them to hurting each other as well. See, our relationship with God will always affect our relationship with those around us. Our relationship with God will always affect the relationships of the people around us. Malachi 2, verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenants of our Father? See, there were brothers and sisters in the family of God, but they were faithless to God and faithless to one another. 
And being faithless to one another implies that they were breaking promises of all kinds. Business and governmental and societal promises were disregarded. And this is started because they didn't keep their promises with God. And this breaking of the covenant between God and Israel even led to the breaking of the most important covenant between two people. And that's marriage. First, they disobeyed God in who they chose to marry. God was clear that his children should never marry someone that doesn't worship him. In Malachi 2, verse 11, it says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, some people twist these types of passages to say that interracial marriage is bad. But that's simply not true. Interfaith marriage is what the Bible warns us about. And there were many people in the Bible of other ethnicities that married each other. Ruth was a Moabite and Boaz was an Israelite, but Ruth left the worship of her pagan gods to serve God. And the whole book of uh, the Bible titled Ruth is about their love story. Moses married an Ethiopian woman named Zipporah, and God punishes Moses' sister-in-law, Miriam, for having a problem with their ethnicity. And also don't forget what we know of as White people aren't in the Bible. Back then they dealt in countries like Rome and Greece. But most of the people and most of the characters in the Bible are a lot browner in skin tone than us. So passages like this aren't talking about interracial marriage. But God does warn against interfaith marriages. It tells us that also in 2 Corinthians 6.14 when it says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I'm not a farmer. <gasps> right? You're all surprised about that, right? But I do know this, that if you strap a bull and a donkey to the same yoke to pull a plow, they aren't going to pull in a straight line. And the same is true of a believer and an unbeliever. Now, if you're here and you're like, uh-oh, uh where does this leave me? I already did that, Pastor Phil. Well, marriage is important in God's eyes. And a man and a woman become one. And in 1 Corinthians 7, it tackles this subject. And God makes it clear that divorce is not the answer in an interfaith marriage. So in that case, you pray and you hold on and you hope for God to do something big. And your example of being a Jesus follower can make a difference. So that was the first problem in their marriages. And here's the next issue in Malachi 2, verse 13. It says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's that word covenant again. And all this breaking of covenants has led to the Lord not hearing their prayers. And God doesn't want our insincere offerings or words that don't engage our hearts. 
And you could come and cover the entire altar with your tears, but if you are living in disobedience, then God won't accept it. He wants genuine devotion and love and a whole heart that is dedicated to him, not just for an hour on a Sunday morning, but a whole life given over to him. And in the context of this passage, if you read this scripture, uh, it appears to be referencing men who are divorcing the wife of their youth, now older, and marrying younger women who worshiped other gods. And this breaks a covenant of God twofold, and God takes this seriously. See, marriage is something that God came up with at the very beginning. It's a promise to have and to hold in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And there are certain instances where God allows divorce, but these were casual divorces where one spouse was leaving for pleasure or to seek happiness rather than sticking through the hard times or when the newness of marriage has faded. Those of you that are married, how many of you admit that marriage is hard? Everybody look around. You're not the only one. Marriage is hard. And there are times that things aren't the way that you wish they were. But except in those extreme examples that the Bible gives, it tells us to press on. Because today, my feelings shouldn't dictate my decisions. And this covenant means something. Love and marriage are not a feeling. It's a promise, a covenant that should not be broken by either party except in extreme instances. Why, though? Why is marriage so important? Well, the New Testament tells us in Ephesians 5.25 that Jesus is the groom and we, the church, are his bride. And the church is what Christ loves. And the church is what God uh, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, gave himself for. And it tells us, husbands, that that's the example that we're supposed to follow. The example of Christ giving himself. For his bride. And over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God uses this, mar- uh, this metaphor of this marriage covenant between God and his people. And our individual marriages are supposed to preach the gospel. A man and a woman living for each other's good and putting each other first, just like Jesus put us first. And when we look at the state of Sexuality and divorce and marriage today in our country. I believe the church needs to repent for not modeling marriage in a way that shows the beauty of the gospel. And when we as Christians put our spouses down or ignore them or unfaithful to them, don't put them first, take advantage of them, are apathetic towards them, then we are doing a disservice to the gospel. And our witness is hurt. Christian marriage it should be one of the most attractive things about becoming a Christian. A place of safety and beauty and love and forgiveness and faithfulness and mutual fulfillment. And we do see that in marriages that are lived out based on Christ. But the examples are too far and too few between. 
Now, Paul does say as well that singleness can also be an amazing and wonderful picture of relying on God and being fully surrendered to Him. And if you're here today and say, Pastor Phil, I'm single, that's amazing and that's awesome. And it's much better to be single than to marry the wrong person. And that can be a picture of your completely relying on Jesus Christ. But it's no wonder that society is confused about marriage. The news is filled uh, with pastors and leaders that preach the gospel, but they're ruining their families. And in some cases, abusing children. And we wonder why the world is so jaded about Christianity and why they question its goodness and value and why the world is so confused about love and sex. Marriage is important. And it's bigger than you. And husbands, you can teach your kids all you want to about God, but if you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church, then that message is going to be cloudy and confusing. Wives, you can teach your kids all you want about faith, but if you are unfaithful in your marriage, it's going to hurt the message. See, love is an action word, not a feeling. And love is choosing to commit to each other every day. And maybe singleness is God's plan for you. You are not lesser and you are not unworthy. God loves you. You're not less than a person today. But the people of Israel were choosing pleasure and temporary happiness and chasing lust rather than keeping their promises. And when they treated marriages like this, God said they are covered in the blood of violence. Wow, that's a, a pretty graphic picture. I've never watched this movie. You heathens probably have. But I've seen pictures of the movie Carrie, right? And, and where they dump like blood on this girl in the, like a prom or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you're all exposed. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but that's the picture there, that we're covered. When we, when we treat marriages like this, we're covered. When we break this covenant, we're covered in the blood of violence. What is that picture trying to say? It hurts people when we don't keep our covenants. And not just the spouse, but kids and friends and loved ones. Why? Because our relationship with God always affects our relationship with the people around us. When we don't keep this covenant, it breaks these covenants as well. And it might not happen right away, but that is the end result. But once again, the people of Israel, like we often do, try to blame shift and point the finger back at God as if he is the one that broke the covenant that they had with each other. This was futile, but they did it. So Israel br brings uh, dispute number four against God. And they say that he has neglected them and allowed injustice to come upon them. They literally say, God rewards evil and those that commit it. That's a bold thing to say, right? God rewards the people that are doing what is wrong. Clearly, they're all mixed up. Have you ever had a conversation with someone like that where you're, they're so off base and they're so just far away from the truth that you don't even know how to have a discussion with them? It's like you're talking different languages. Well, Malachi says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
If you've got kids, you know exactly what that feels like. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? They did what God had told them to do, right? And the temple had been finished. And they felt like they had done their part. But it seems to them like the wicked people were prospering. And they thought that the Messiah was just going to come right when they wanted him to and to fix everything. But they waited and nothing happened. And, and so they accused God of not showing up for them. See, that when they assumed, as they're throwing these act, uh, accusations at God, that it would cause him to judge those wicked people outside the country. Right? Those people that I don't like. God, judge my enemies because my enemies are wicked. But God makes it clear that he doesn't have to go outside the boundaries of Israel to find evil. And that one day in the future he would judge the wicked, but they shouldn't desire it right now because they had yet to repent over their own evil. And they right now would be standing in the direction of his wrath. They had brought offensive offerings and they broke in the covenants that, God, that they had with God and with each other. So chapter 3, verse 1, God answers this accusation that he had neglected them and allowed injustice to come upon them. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is one of those situations where, uh, you know, you're driving or your parents were driving when you were younger and they say, don't make me come back there, right? That wasn't like, oh, I'm going to stop the car and we're just going to hug for a while. There was, there was going to be some trouble. And he says, I'm coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of the silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. See, the fire of a blacksmith is not comfortable for the metal. So be careful when you look around and say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I wish God would just judge all this wickedness. Why? Because someone once said, the enemy is the inner me. We don't have to look outside of us to find evil and wickedness. We need to start with God, purify my heart. Search me, O oh God. Show me my sin that I may repent and find forgiveness. God, make my offering pleasing to you. God, purify the church. God, help us to repent of our wickedness. See, they had tried to blame God for injustice running rampant, but they were participating in it. And God says in the future he will deal with sin. But right now they're neglecting their responsibilities and they are bringing wickedness and evil into the world. And so God says you better get things right, right now, because there will be a day. This passage in Malachi is also quoted in the New Testament in one of the Gospels in Mark chapter 1 verse 2. And in that 
instance, it's referencing John the Baptist being that messenger in Malachi, calling people to repentance and preparing them for the coming Messiah. See, so it does happen. It just doesn't happen when the people that are being addressed in Malachi wanted it to happen. Verse 5, chapter 3. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift, uh, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and the widow and the fatherless, those that oppress all these people, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Once again, they had broken their covenant with God. They hadn't put God first. They had brought their table scraps for worship. God wasn't their priority. And our relationship with God always affects our relationships with the people around us. And because their priorities were out of order and God wasn't first, they had broken their covenants, not just with God, but with their business partners and their employees and society and country and humanity. Injustice had crept into every part. Idolatry had robbed God of his praise, so people broke their promises with each other. It says they didn't pay, uh, pay a fair wage to people, and they neglected widows and orphans and allowed them to suffer and allowed them to uh, be outcasts, and they abandoned the foreigner and the immigrant who needed help. They didn't fear God. We need to be careful to give the king of the universe honor and respect that he deserves. Because when we break our covenants with God and we cease to find our identity and worth in being a child of God, society eventually falls apart and common decency is lost. Employees and widows and orphans and immigrants neglected by the people of God. But Jesus pushed us to care about the outcast and to tend to widows and orphans and to be fair in our dealings with each other. And it reminded us to welcome the stranger like the Good Samaritan did. And when we don't, he puts that sin of neglect in the same list as adultery, as lying, and as sorcery. We have disputes with God. We have failed him and we haven't kept our promises. But Christ, the Redeemer, he stood on the hill of Calvary and he brought peace. Just like that statue of Christ of the Andes. But instead of being fashioned with the cannons of war, he wore the shame and bore the sin that we brought into the world. And because Christ stood between God and us on a cross, now we can go boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus fixes what is broken between us and God. It's done. It's finished. But we still need to submit each part of our life to him daily. Because in order for our lives to be pleasing to God, we have to put him first. And when we put him first, everything else begins to fall in line. Marriages and friendships and family and community. When we put God's first, the rest lines up. 
our relationship with God always affects our relationship with the people around us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Band's going to come. Not every relationship is fixed. Sometimes there's one party that doesn't just have any interest in it. My family, uh, growing up, have seen things like that. I'm sure your families have too. That's tough. But one thing that we should always check when we have these relational situations around us, we need to check to make sure that God is first. Now, putting God first in our life doesn't fix everything in our life because life is broken and life is hard and sin is still around us. But we always, when we have these things going on outside of us, we always need to check inside us and ask God, are we right with you? It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Let me start with me and then work my way out. Maybe God has brought some people in your life up in your heart and what you need to do is you need to begin to ask that question. God, are you first? Okay, you're first, then I'm going to go get things right with the people around me talks about in God's word, even putting your offering down before you were to give it to God and going and making things right with his sons and daughters. Maybe that's you. That doesn't mean you go and say some cop-out apology that, you know, I'm sorry you got offended, or some half-hearted mumbling just to make your guilt go away. No, it's a willingness to restore the relationship and to do whatever that costs, even when the other person isn't quite there yet. You might say, well, forgive and forget. Yeah, that's what we're working towards. That's what you're hoping for. But sometimes it takes deeper relate. We don't want shallow, fake relationships. And that takes being real and it takes time. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe it, even driving in to church this morning, you said something to your kids or you said something to your wife or maybe last week you said something about a coworker, or you said something to a family member. Start with God. God, is my heart right with you? If not, get it right. God is that father in the story of the prodigal son that is ready and willing to open his arms and to forgive you. Run to him. Get that right first. And then once that's right, go and begin to humble yourself and begin to make amends between you and those around you. As we softly, uh, the band softly plays, if you take a minute.
is allow God to search your heart. Begin to take an inventory of, of those relationships in your life that aren't where they're supposed to be. Starting with God. Heavenly Father, God, I pray you help us to put down our defenses, to break down those walls that stand between us and you and us and those around us. God, I pray for every marriage that's represented in this room. I pray that you begin to form it and fashion it into the example of Christ loving the church and giving himself for it. Help us to put each other first. God, help us to be ready to forgive, ready to press on. And God, when we're the one in fault, I pray you, help us to own it, not to excuse it, and to ask for forgiveness and move forward. God, I pray for uh, every employee, God. There are hard relationships between an employee and a boss, God. I pray that you would begin to work in those relationships, not just with bosses, but with co-workers as well. God, I pray you help us to be a witness and an example where we work, where we spend a lot of our time. God, I pray for, for friendships and just our witness in the community pray for the relationships between parents and children. God, I pray you begin to heal each and every one of those relationships in our lives by us putting you first and following you. As we continue in an attitude of prayer, I want to speak just to some people in the room that you might not have taken that first step yet of healing the relationship between you and God. See, sin has broken it. We have disobeyed and we have sinned and we have hurt this relationship between us and a holy God. And it started way back in the beginning with Adam and sin. And see, the problem is, is we cannot get to a holy God because of our sin. But Christ made a way. It's like that statue that we saw up on a mountain standing between the borders of two parties that were at odds with each other. God, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to hang on a cross to bear all our sin 
and to take all our shame and take all the punishment that we deserve and all the humanity deserved for bringing this wickedness into the world. And you were judged for what we should have been punished for. Maybe you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. The Bible says that God commended his love towards us. In Romans 5, 8, it says that Christ died for us, even though we were sinners. Romans 3, or excuse me, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10.13 says, that Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that today, once and for all. You don't have to work your way to get to God. It is a surrender. And saying, God, I can't be good enough to get to you. But Jesus already was. You can call out to him with something like this. It's not a magic prayer. You change it however you feel fit to apply to you. You can call out right now with something like this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know because of my sin that I deserve hell. God, forgive me. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you. And I put my faith in what Jesus did on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. that's you today and you made that decision once and for all you're not playing games with God it's not just a you know repeat after me type situation but you genuinely uh, genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ today as the only means of your salvation I'd love for you to write that on your connection card I choose Jesus put that into the offering box later on I choose Jesus we'd love to follow up with you and tell you about the most amazing relationship that you can ever have and what's next dear God we love you I pray for every soul in this room God I pray that you draw them into a deeper relationship with you God help us to be a witness and help us in our covenants that we have around us to represent the covenant that you made with us that you love us and that you're fair and that you're just Help us to be kingdom people. Work out your kingdom on this earth. In your name we pray.